Thank you so much. Here, I'll take that. Oh, we got to mute it. Hey, good morning, Eastgate. Good to see everybody this morning. We are going to be reading a fairly long uh, story this morning, and so I need to just kind of jump into our text right away uh, here. Uh, We're continuing in our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, So if you've got a a way to follow along, and if you'd like to, if you want to find your way to John chapter 9, please. Uh, And how are we doing with this study so far? Everybody enjoying the Gospel of John? I've been getting so much out of it. I just, it's an amazing book. Uh, Anyway, we're in a section... Uh, if you were to look, uh, Mike, if I could get this turned down just a little bit, it's real boomy to me and scaring me. Uh, if you look at the back of your bulletins, you'll actually find that there's a little outline of the book of John on there. And we're in a section here where the author, John, we believe, is putting Jesus in contrast with the festivals, the Old Testament festivals of Israel. Doing that by, in doing that, he's revealing the messianic replacement of those things with something deeper, something more universal, a reality of being reunited with God through Jesus, through him. We've just finished chapter 8, reading this really long discussion between Jesus and the leaders of Israel and the crowd, some who believed in him, some who didn't. And the theme of light, if you remember, is a recurring theme all through this gospel. We've been talking about it over and over again. It, it comes up. It, it, it was occurring again in that last section. And today we're going to read a story that plays on that to some degree because it deals with seeing, which always accompanies the idea of light. And Jesus is even going to use that phrase that he is the light uh, in this section. We're going to be reading about a miracle that Jesus does, giving sight to a man who was born blind, born unable to see, which sets up then the main focus of this section, which is the profound display of blindness on the part of the religious leaders. So it's almost like a case study of what was talked about in the last part of chapter 8, where Jesus told the religious leaders they couldn't hear him because he was telling the truth. And now we're going to discover they can't see him for the very same reasons, because he's operating on a level that they're not willing to to recognize. And you'll get it as we go. So if you're there in John chapter 9, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. For we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I'm the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. In here you insert, he told, them, he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this a man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. Others said, no, it just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, well, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I see. Well, where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Okay, so here we have the story of a man who has lived his life 
in darkness until the light of Christ has opened his eyes. So while I believe this actually happened, I believe in the veracity of the story, I also believe that John includes it here because it's revealing a spiritual truth as well, as most of the miracles do in John's gospel that he includes. Blindness, man, that was a common affliction in the ancient world, mostly due to the unsanitary conditions that people lived in, largely because of the unsanitary water. From, from the time that this man was born, he was unable to see light. He was unable to see anything. And his entire existence depended on the kindness of strangers who took pity on him. And when Jesus' disciples see him, they obviously feel pity for him. But then they, they leverage that pity into an interesting theological puzzle. So they ask Jesus, whose sin caused this calamity here? This guy's sin or his parents' sin? Because, and this is the puzzle to it, because if it was this guy's sin, then this is God uh, judging somebody providentially. In other words, he's looking into the future, recognizing what he's going to do, and is judging him for it even before he had a chance to do it, because he was born blind. But if it's his parents' sin, then that lends a, a new twist to this, because they sort of sinned with impunity, since God's punished somebody else for something that they did. So it's a chicken and and the egg sort of puzzle. It's interesting, but it's pointless. Jesus, Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath their question by dismissing the premise of it entirely. He says, this is not because of sin. Hear that. Hear what he says in this. This is not because of his sin, his parents' sin. He dismisses that altogether. It's because it's a broken world and terrible stuff happens here. It's good for us to remember these things. When afflictions or troubles come, we shouldn't be looking around for the cause. What did I do? What did somebody else do or whatever? Because that's what the pagans do. Looking around to figure out which of the gods they've angered in their actions. On the contrary, this man's plight was the product of a broken world, which Jesus then points out is his mission to fix. Think about that for just, I mean, on the surface... The way that this is translated, Jesus' response, the translation of it almost sounds like Jesus is saying God caused this man to be blind so that he could heal him later on and get glory. That carries terrible uh, implications that the rest of the scripture doesn't really support. Gary Burge, in his commentary on this passage, suggests that the Greek could alternately be translated this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it's the day. In other words, so that God will be glorified, let's take care of this situation. That makes way more sense to me. Uh, You'll have to think it through, maybe do a little research on it, uh, or watch cat videos, whatever you're into. Anyway, Jesus makes mud pies with spit. He smears it on the guy's eyes, and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that's significant because... That's where they would draw the water for the tabernacle ceremony. We just read about a few weeks back. The, the, a procession of priests would go dip into the water, take it up to the Temple Mount, pour it out on the altar. And it's at that moment Jesus says that I am the living water. Come to me if you're thirsty. In other words, I'm the fulfillment of what this meant. So here we have the water of life and the light of life merged together in this story. It's just so cool what John does. Anyway, the man is healed. Everybody is stunned. They can't even get themselves to believe that it's the same guy. And Because, you know, you think about this. This is ground-shaking stuff. I mean, this, this is going to throw your world out of whack, seeing something that you never expected. 
to see. And they ask him who did this, and he admits that he doesn't know because while Jesus was with him, he still couldn't see. It's in Jesus' absence that he comes into the fullness of what it was that was promised to him. And I wish I had time to drill down on that point because that's a profound picture as well. Something to take home and, and chew on for a while. Walk around with a cup of tea and think about it. Anyway, all of this is a setup for the meat of the story, which is the revelation of a different, more sinister kind of blindness that the religious leaders suffer from. And that is the point of this story, to warn us as to how we can avoid spiritual blindness. So let's keep reading. Verse 13, then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them he put mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, how can an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. Okay, so in the ancient world, there were only two options for someone who was going to be born blind. Somebody in this, in our world, there's a lot more options available. It's still a terrible plight to be in, but we've got, we've got ways in which we can accommodate and help and support. In, in those days, there was nothing like that. A person had two choices. You were either going to die of attrition or become a beggar. That was the lot in life. The man probably wasn't old. His parents are introduced in the next section. So, so now with his sight restored, you think about this. This man can now re-enter society where he wasn't able to be before. He not only gets his sight back, but he's given his dignity back. Now he's got these wide open horizons of opportunities in front of him. A whole new life is there before him. Jesus didn't just give him eyes. He gave him life in this moment. He's no longer, he is is restored to his place of dignity in his humanity. And he's no longer just the object of other people's pity. What's happened to this man is profoundly good. But what is it that occupies the thoughts of the religious leaders? They're not asking how the man feels. They're they're not out seeing, is there anything we can do to help you adjust to this new gift you've been given of sight? No, no. What are they concerned about? That Jesus, Jesus mixed water and mud together, probably three fingers. Jesus did this when it was forbidden, according to the Talmud, the oral law, the traditions of men, as Jesus called them. They only want to know why it doesn't line up with their accepted boundaries. They can't see the magnitude of the miracle because they're obsessed with the minutia of religious performance. But before we just sit here and scoff at them, <laughs> those guys, if we do that, we're doing it wrong. Because what, we're in, what John intends for us to do is stop right here, hit the brakes hard, and start looking at ourselves. As 21st century Christians in America, when it comes to our practice of of faith, when it comes to how it is that we go about being the church in this world, we need to know that we avoid spiritual blindness by prioritizing people over religious structure. I got to tell you, that was one of the premises of Eastgate as it started. That's what I realized had to happen. 
And I believe the whole reason this story is even here is to highlight the obvious yet deep distinction between the practice of religion and participation in the kingdom of God and what it is that God is doing. For the religious leaders, the work of God was restrictive. For them, God's plan was contained in a rigid framework of doctrine and practice and pleasing God consisted of corralling people away from the restricted areas. But Jesus came showing that God's plan is redemptive in its ongoing, ever-developing, often unexpected, always surprising plan to take broken people and make them whole. And it knocks down every boundary and barrier and it sweeps through every restricted place and gathers up anyone who wants to be reunited with God. That's the great divide between mere religion and the dynamic of God's kingdom as it's been revealed through Jesus. Mere religion in and of itself is blinding because it magnifies the structure and it minimizes people. And that was, that's what was happening in this story. They couldn't see the wonderful thing that had just happened before them in this man's life because they were obsessed with the rules as they understood them. Wherever rules matter most and people take second place, we got darkness closing in. Anytime we place a value on some doctrine or practice above the value of a human being made in God's image, we are in danger of being blind to God's plan. Yeah, but Rob, God says some strong things in his word, and I've got strong convictions about the Have them. Have convictions. That should have no bearing on how it is that we treat our fellow human being. Remember, Jesus said that, that the whole Old Testament law is fulfilled by what? By loving God with all of our being and then loving our neighbor as ourself. Meaning how we love God is directly connected with how it is that we're loving our fellow human being. If a person's lifestyle offends our convictions, does that prevent us from showing love or care or compassion or acceptance of them as a fellow human being? If so, based on this story, it's a symptom of spiritual blindness time for an eye exam so we have to ask ourselves is my language and are my actions restrictive or redemptive when it comes to desiring to please God and represent his kingdom in this world am I trying to corral people away from the restricted areas or am I looking to see how God can mend and restore the broken human beings of this world Our ability to see God's plan is at stake in our answer to that. All right, well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called his parents and they asked him, Is this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how can he now see? His parents replied, Well, we know it's our son and and he was born blind. But we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. 
Now, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. So that's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So the poor guy, first his identity is questioned, you know, back in verse 9. Now his honesty has been called into question. They accuse him of faking this. This is fake news. What are you doing here? And then they call his parents in, and they, for all intents and purposes, throw him under the bus in this whole thing because they didn't want to be excommunicated from the excommunicate kicked out of the synagogue now in our culture and time i mean that's like we're like thinking well big deal so they kick you out of church you go down to the street go to the next one and you know just keep going until somebody but in the synagogue in the first century palestine was a vital part of a person's connection to the community at large I mean, it wasn't just going to church on Sunday or something. It was where you received support. It's where people gathered. It's where you heard the news. It's, it's, it was where you had your sense of belonging within that society. So, I mean, there wasn't another brand down the street. If you didn't like this one, you could just, you know, go. If you got thrown out of the synagogue, you were officially an outcast within that society. You were on your own in the world. So the threat is huge. Stay with the system or be outcast. And with that much on the line, they leave their son to fend for himself in this investigation. <laughs> yeah, I know, he's of age. Ask him, leave us out of this. God had done this amazing thing for their child. I mean, think of that. Your child was born in this condition and God has miraculously turned it around. What, what's happening here? They were so entrenched in the religious and social system, they chose to side with it rather than with their own son or with what it was that God was doing for that matter. I believe there's a lesson here for us in this. It's an important one that we avoid blindness by fixing our loyalty on God alone, not on religious systems or structures. Sometimes we get so tied to a system or a a religion or or thought or politics, we become blinded to any other possibilities of what God could be doing. Anything that's outside of what we're accustomed to becomes suspect. Where the thought of leaving a system or an organization becomes so dreadful and it becomes more powerful than the wonder and the joy of witnessing the surprising things that God is doing, continues to do in our midst to this very day. I've talked about this a lot. I don't want to belabor the point, but Christians, our loyalty is not meant to go to human systems. Our loyalty is to God, to God alone and his Messiah and his values and his priorities and his purposes which means we look for that stuff regardless of what anybody else purports to be. We look for his values, for his purposes, for his priorities and the things that we embrace and support and throw our loyalties towards. Well, he that has an ear, let him hear. We'll keep reading verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Uh, I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. 
But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man explained, I told you once. Didn't didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Another this disparaging remark about his birth story and the and the problems around that why that's very strange the man replied he healed my eyes and yet you don't know where he comes from we know that god doesn't listen to sinners but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will ever since the world began no one's been able to open the eyes of someone born blind if this man were not from god he couldn't have done that You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. So the contrast, right, between the the humility of this healed man and, and the pride and the arrogance of the leaders in this story is stark. The healed man was honest about what he didn't know. Didn't come in acting like he was a Jesus expert now. No, I don't know where he is. I don't even know what he looks like. I can't even tell you what sort of man he really is. I virtually know nothing about him except for what I've seen happen in my life. The evidence that's right here in my own experience. Once I was blind, but now I can see. You can't argue somebody out of that. Well, they try. They, they keep pushing to hear the story again. And in something that reads like a Shakespearean comedy, the, the healed man asks them sarcastically if they're so inquisitive because they want to come become his followers too. And that word too is very important because it tells us where the headspace is of this healed man. Too, as well. In other words, he's going to be a follower as soon as he can figure out who Jesus is and where he is. I'm in. And they retort that they follow Moses, meaning not just Moses the person, meaning the law, the law of Moses. And Jesus, he's suspect regarding that. He's out there doing this on, on, you know. And in a stroke of genius, the healed man points out their hypocrisy because the very law they claim to follow provides the basis for determining whether or not a prophet is valid. Does he point to God or some other idol? Deuteronomy lays this out. Does he magnify the one true God or magnify himself or uh, the religions of man? And if the, the Pharisees had been listening at all, they would have known that Jesus pointed only to the God of Israel in all that he did, even in the midst of doing this miracle that nobody had ever seen or heard of before. That is the real evidence, the test of who Jesus is. And, you know, when the leaders hear this, they're just like, oh, thank you. I never thought of it that way. I've been seeing this from a different perspective now. I get it. (laughs) No, they're insulted and they kick him out of the synagogue. In other words, they cut him off from Jewish society because of his words. And I think it teaches us that we're going to avoid blindness by being correctable. Ultimately, This is the blindness of pride. And oh man, that's that's a sickness (laughs) among the people of God all through the whole story, starting in the Garden of Eden. We're not going to stand here. The religious leaders are saying, we're not going to stand here and be taught by you. Who do you think you are? We're the theological big dogs. We tell you what's up, not the other way around. 
They weren't even willing to consider the idea that their thinking or their actions needed to be corrected. And especially not from someone like him. You know, that's the idea there. So we have to examine our our own reactions and consider, does pride get in the way of our receiving correction or instruction on some matter? Do we disdain a critique, especially if it comes from someone we consider beneath us somehow? Because if so, it's a symptom of blindness. Well, Rob, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not someone in charge of anything. I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm not even a boss at my work. I'm just, you know, well, okay. But I still think it applies. I mean, think about this. How do you respond when someone criticizes you? And that doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean that every critique or every correction is right. It doesn't mean that we have to just submit to everything somebody says about us. But how do we respond to that? Now, listen, obviously, any critique. We're just human beings. I mean, it, human beings? Anybody in the room? Yeah, okay. That's the majority of us anyway. So, that, you know, initially we're going to feel the feelings of this. We can't help that. We're naturally going to bristle and feel the criticism on an emotional level. But then what? Do we sulk? Do we get mad? Do we get even? Come up with an even better critique on that person? Yeah, well, what about blah, blah, blah? <laughs> do, we, do we take a position of superiority? How could that fool criticize glorious me? (laughs) We all view ourselves through the lens of our own personal bias. Can't help it. That's a reality of being a human being. That by its very nature can be a sort of blindness. Remember the Dunning-Kruger effect? Janelle mentioned it a few weeks back. Criticism, whether it's deserved or not, provides us with at very least the opportunity to view ourselves from a different perspective, to see what somebody else may see that we, by the nature of our own personal bias, can't see. Listen, nobody can judge our our motives or intent. Nobody. You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. Nobody can do that. No human is able to judge the motive or intent. But they can judge our words and our actions, right? Because those are out there. So, you know, maybe it's even unintentional. Maybe my intent, my motive was good, but my words, my actions didn't line up with those internal motives I had. They can only see what they see. And so it's important with every criticism to examine it, no matter the source, to honestly evaluate what's been said and see, is there a legitimate correction here that I may be in need of? Is there something that I'm not seeing and how it is that I'm projecting myself or how it is that I'm using this gift of language I've been given? So see, it's easy. Fixed. <laughs> it's so easy to say. It's, you might even be sitting there thinking, yeah, that's good. That's great. It's real easy to say. It is so hard to do, to put this into practice, but to refuse to do it, to refuse to at least attempt it, is to invite blindness. To invite blindness to rule our actions and how we carry ourselves. And listen, that is no way to live. Okay, finishing up quickly, verse uh, 35. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man that the man had been kicked out. He found the man and asked him, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You've seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe 
the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, whoa, 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 whoa. are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And then the mic drop just reverberated from there. So when this guy is an outcast, when he's cut off from mainstream society, Jesus goes looking for him, trying to find him. I love that. Doesn't doesn't matter what people think of you. It only matters what Jesus thinks. And here the man progresses to the point that John wants all of us to progress to. This is what he put at the end of his gospel, why he wrote it. He, he, to, the, well, to the place where we believe and we worship Jesus as Lord. And this guy, you know, believes, he worships him. Listen, you know, if, if Jesus weren't divine, receiving worship like this, he would have stopped him if he weren't divine. But because receiving worship like this, if he weren't divine, would make him the villain of this story. But instead he receives it. He's in a position to be able to receive it. And the story wraps up with Jesus contrasting the blind and the seeing, making the direct point about religious blindness. And and, and clearly, you know, the Pharisees get it. They bristle. You call us blind. And Jesus gets to the heart of this whole thing. You say you can see. In other words, you say that you can understand God and his ways and that you have your act together. And as long as you try to foster that illusion of control, you will not find the help you need. That's concisely what he's saying there. And I think we learn here that we're going to avoid blindness by releasing our need to control because that's what this is about. It's the heart of the whole controversy. As long as everything stayed within the accepted boundaries that were established by the religious system, the Pharisees pretty much felt in control of life, honestly, in control of God. Thank you very much. God was sort of a vending machine. I do this, I put in these good works, I avoid that restricted or unclean thing, and God then dispenses a blessing. I pull the slot and out comes the blessing. But Jesus comes along and he disrupts that neat little order. And he reveals this wild and relational God that we serve. And they freak out mostly because it threatens their sense of control over this. And let's face it, we all have a hard time when our tidy little worlds get disrupted, when we're pushed to think in in new ways, to go to different places that we didn't necessarily want to see. But I believe that's the very reason John puts a story like this in the gospel, so that we can see. We're challenged to see the very hand of God at work in our lives in ways that we never would have dreamed of. Weren't you just talking about this a minute ago when you were introducing that song? The whole idea that, you know, finding and recognizing that evidence of God at work in our lives, looking in places we wouldn't automatically assume that, that he's working. Things that we wouldn't automatically assume are blessings that actually are if we look at them from the right perspective. Man, God opens up a kind of life we never dreamed of when we were in control of everything. The authorities were afraid of what would happen when God got involved and they were no longer in control. But we have the advantage of reading this story. We can, by an act of our will, surrender 
that need to control uh, and let God be God in our lives. Let God be the one who directs and who guides, not a static religious system. And this honestly should come as a relief. Like, I mean, you know, we, we grasp for control. We do it. We do it as human beings. To realize that we don't have to be in control of everything, that should actually cause us to sigh, to, to slump against the wall. It just allows a freedom for us not to know everything or, or to not know how to fix everything. It's a weird kind of thing. I feel like evangelical Christians, we're so afraid of the words, I don't know. Why would we be afraid of that? There's a lot that I don't know. I don't know if that's going to throw you, but I don't know. But, but, but I don't know, and I'm not in control of everything, and I don't have all of the answers, but I know who does, and I know who can lead us home. And I know that if we put our trust in him, he'll guide us and he'll lead us and he'll provide for us the wisdom we need in the moments that we need them as long as we're seeking after his values, his principles, not swearing our loyalties to a, a, a system designed by humans or to, to static rules and rituals, but we're throwing our lot in with the living God, wild and free and running through this earth. So... Let's allow this to happen. Let's hold to a simple faith. Let's hold to a simple trust. Let's allow this same Jesus to give us sight, new insights about life and love and God and this world. All the stuff that he wants to do, that he's constantly been doing with humans since Jesus first arrived on this earth. Let's allow him to lead us into life. A life where we can see. Right on? All right. Well, this morning we're going to observe communion. As you see, uh, uh, the Lord's table, the communion of the bread and cup. This is a good time to ask God to, to probe our hearts and to lead us into his light, what it is that he intends for us. So let's commit our hearts to him as we take this meal together, committing our hearts to him in new ways. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he gathered with his disciples to observe, as best as we can tell, the, the Passover ceremony. That's a covenant meal that Israel observed to remind themselves of who they were, what their origins were, and what it was that God was doing in their lives. And so Jesus took the elements of this meal and he repurposed it to lead us into a new exodus, a new covenant uh, where, where we're no longer uh, just one nation now following, but a multinational, multi-ethnic family of God that follows the Lamb wherever he goes. And so in these elements, Jesus was forecasting the kind of death he was going to die, and he was forecasting for us the means by which our salvation, our freedom would be procured. He wasn't leaving us in the same position that we were in. Much like the blind man, he's bringing us a new life and through his death, his sacrifice on the cross, he leads us into new life. We don't have to be the same as we were. He can, he can work in our lives in ways that profoundly change us and, and represent the reality of his values in this world. So on the night that he was betrayed, can I grab a cup? Of, oh, I got it here. What am I talking about? I actually did this beforehand and then forgot. So on the night that he was betrayed... Uh, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus takes the, the Ephicomen bread, the dessert bread, and as, they, as he breaks it up and he's passing it out to everybody, he says, take and eat this. This is my body. 
given for you. And of course, I'm sure that took everybody back to John chapter 6 when he made those statements, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Probably there was a few shivers at the table at that moment thinking, oh boy, here we go. But Jesus was in that moment declaring what was about to happen. He's going to the cross on our behalf. He is going to take the full consequence of sin onto himself. How did that work? I can't tell you. There's a Ken. I don't know. But I know the effects of it. Because like the blind man, I can say, once I was blind, once I was lost, once I was hopeless, now I see, now I live, now I love according to God's values. So it's effective. We just have to believe it. His death on the cross procured new life for us by removing the consequence of sin, that death that haunted humans for all time. Then he took the cup at the end of the ceremony, the, the cup of redemption. And as he passed that around, he said, this is my blood. This is a new covenant for you in my blood, meaning the old covenant had come to its conclusion. And now we have a new covenant, a new way that we relate to God, not by a system of laws or rules, but now we, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, have been reconciled with God through this blood. We are now reconnected to the God who created us. We are now returned to our original place as image bearers of God in creation. This is who we are. This is what all this means. There's a lot of words. Very few of them are written in the scriptures, but these are the things that we've, we've culled from it and learned from it and observed from it. And so we're going to pray over the elements here. We're going to invite you. There's a table in the back and a table in the front. We're going to invite you to quickly come up and get the elements. When you take the elements back to your seat, go ahead and eat them and partake of them then. You can gather some people around if you want to. Take it together. Do it in private. However seems right to you, but also acknowledge the people around you because this is a profound symbol of love. And it's God's love that's brought us to this place. And so it's his love we want to represent to one another. So, man, hugs and high fives, all of that are in order in these, in these kinds of moments. So let's pray over the elements. We'll, we'll uh, invite you to take them. So, Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. But, Lord, what, what they represent is all important, that you went to the cross and died for us. Lord, we can spend all of this time using words to try to convey something that's so deep and powerful that words fall flat. I pray, Father, that you meet us here, that you are present in this bread and cup as we take it. And I pray for every person here that you will work on our hearts, bring the transformative power of the kingdom of God close to each one of us as we take this meal and let your love flow through us to one another here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on up and get the elements and then we'll eat those and close with a a worship song.
teach me to listen I don't want to see anymore Give me a vision That you couldn't move this hard To be set apart How don't you recognize The man in the mirror I don't want to trade your plans For something familiar I can't waste a day I can't stay the same I want to be different I want to be changed All of me is gone All that remains Is a fire so bright There's something different So come and be different In me I don't want to spend my life Stuck in a pattern I don't want to gain this world Lose what matters So I'm giving up All of me is gone All that remains Is a fire so bright Oh, I can see There's something different Come and be different I know that I'm far from perfect Through you the cross still says I'm worth everybody for being so patient, staying here so long today. And uh, we covered a lot of ground, but it was good, right? So, so let's uh, say this prayer together. Let's speak this prayer. And uh, uh, if you need prayer for anything specifically, please come up and uh, uh, talk to us. We'd love to pray with you and see what God will do. Uh, but let's say this together. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. 
You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.